0: A fictional story. A friend of mine and I were playing in my sandbox, and he was a troll looking for a catfish until he got sick with a virus. That's just a, a little framework that has within it five nouns. Each one of those has changed meaning since I really did play in a sandbox. You know what a sandbox is today. It's the place where software developers in the process of studying one thing can take a little rabbit trail over here and in their sandbox they can create something new so that's the idea of a sandbox a friend is simply a list online and let me tell you they are not your friends what's a catfish it's a person who uh, puts information online that's not true in order to take advantage of you what's a troll It's not that fictional Scandinavian creature. A troll is someone who really wants to upset you and so sends information to you with that intent. And a virus, we all know what it is, not like the one in China today, but it's the one that infects your computer and all of your programs that are in it. See, over time, definitions of terms change. Perhaps for us in the world in which we live, one of the greatest... And misused concepts is that of the saint. Now you've heard of the saints. Different religious beliefs, different churches have saints. It began back when the apostles passed away and in the course of time people said, oh we have some of their bones and we're going to take these relics and bury them here and then on top of these relics we're going to build a church and so since that was James's Bones, we're going to call it the Church of Saint James because he achieved so many great things. And originally, that was the concept that if you were of a certain caliber of person in the religious world, you could be counted as a saint. When the Middle Ages came, it changed because then saints were starting to become a little more normalized because you found a saint for whatever your need was in order to have it, like a saint for travel, a saint for carpentry, a saint for woodworking, a saint for cleaning house. I mean, you could have any saint you wanted. But again, it it was a person who had accomplished something in that arena. Now, none of those definitions are biblical. They've taken the true definition and changed it over time. What we're going to talk about over the next five weeks is what a real saint is, what an ordinary saint is. There's one qualification to begin with. To be an ordinary saint, you have to be an ordinary sinner. And all of us qualify as ordinary sinners. There are probably some among us that are better at it than others. But we are all at least ordinary sinners. When Paul writes one of his letters, it's to the church in Ephesus, and to that church he wants to state that there is something about you that's different, and he actually begins the address by saying, to the saints in Ephesus. So he's immediately identifying normal people who love the Lord as saints, ordinary saints. We're going to talk about that, and today we're going to deal more with the theology of sainthood, but over the following weeks, we'll be talking about how you take that truth and you apply it in your life so that you can go out and live it the way a saint should live. Look with me at the first part of this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, the first seven verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he begins a sentence that grammarians today would tell him he could not write like this. This is one of the longest sentences in the Bible. Watch this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which we by which he made us accepted in the beloved period Whew. Here's the one we're going to concentrate on today in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches Of his grace. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. Let's talk about that for a minute. Ephesus was a port city, the largest in the world at that time. It was second only to Rome with its influence in culture and in trade. People were coming from every direction to Ephesus in order to trade. Modern Ephesus would be somewhere in the lower part of Turkey. Those who would come would also come for another reason, because in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, the goddess. And that had been built, and people were coming to worship her, so the city itself was filled with cults and with evil practices, with a lot of bad things going on. In Acts chapter 18, we learn that Paul went there and started a church. He helped them understand what it would be like following Christ in this kind of an environment. In chapter 19 of Acts, we read that he has to rebuke them because some of them had fallen back into their old patterns and and beliefs, and he was concerned for them. He stayed there between two and three years working with them. The next time we hear of him is in chapter 20 when he is giving his farewell to the elders of the church of Ephesus. Ephesus went on for some time. It's believed that uh, perhaps Timothy went there to pastor and the apostle John ended his ministry there before he went to Patmos. In Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses, Jesus commends Ephesus its work as a church he said they agreed on a lot of things they had unity of body they were really doing well but he had one concern for them and it was a grave concern because he said you have lost your first love what did he mean how do you lose your first love when you first become knowledgeable of who you are and who Christ is, and you release your life to him, there is a joy there that is unexplainable. Only you can experience that joy. You can't experience anyone else's joy like that, but it fills you up to such a measure that you just, you want to go out, you want to do. You're not messed up yet with theology and with other people's ideas. You just have this love for Jesus that drives you to tell everybody about him. Jesus said you lost that. Oh, you were doing good things, you had strong beliefs, but your actions did not reflect your love. That's why we want to take a close look at this book, because today we're going to set down the foundations of that love so that in the weeks to come, you will be able to respond to those foundations, to build upon them, to go and to do things that express that first love that you should have for Jesus. So here Paul is writing, and we're going to take three of the words that he uses in verse 7, and we're going to go from the back to the front, where he said that we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. We're going to start by asking the question, what is sin? Now, we should know what sin is. Because let me tell you, there's not a one of us in here that could deny that we are sinners. The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that includes all of us. Not a single one of us is exempt. But what does it mean? It means, and Paul indicates this in the way that he forms the words in his letter, it means that when you do something that's wrong, You know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. That's sin. That's active sin. That's knowing it and doing it anyway. Then there is passive sin. That is where God has told you to do something, but you refuse to do it. That's just as sinful as active sin. In the 1600s, there was a group of pastors that came together under King James, and he said, I want you to define some terms for me, and I want you to do hard work, and they came out with something called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and in that, they had a teaching method called the Catechetical Method, and it was the shorter catechism that asked the question, what is sin? And here's the answer. Sin is the want of conformity to, or the transgressions of, the law of God. Let me break that down. The old language, want of conformity, means you don't want to conform to what God wants you to do, or transgressions of, you're doing what God told you not to do. So it's the same thing that I said earlier. That's what sin is. And sin belongs to every single one of us because it came from Adam, our forefather. If you want to go on Ancestry.com and spend a lot of money, you can, but let me tell you, I know the origin. I know where you came from I know who your relative is it's Adam and Eve there's no doubt about it that's where we all came from and so when God placed those two in the garden and they made the choice they made you and I are affected by that choice so that when we are born we are born bent toward that choice we already are born with a sinful nature within us before we do anything and then if your child is fortunate to make it to two that's when you find out what sin is. <laughs> sin is something that's just a part of us, but here's, here's the beauty of what God's going to say through Paul to the believers in Ephesus. So that's what Adam did, the first Adam. But there was another Adam, a term being given to Jesus Christ because Jesus came to do what Adam couldn't do and undo what Adam did do. So Jesus came to be obedient by doing everything he was supposed to do. That's active obedience. And not doing those things he should not do, that's passive obedience. So there was Christ, our redeemer, doing what we could not do. 1 Corinthians 14 or 15:45 says this. And so it is written the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam Became a life giving spirit. That's Jesus. So there is hope for us, and we need that hope because let me tell you sin destroys. That's its intent. That's why Satan came to the garden. That's why he and his works continue on us. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Notice how the devils last. It's because we have enough of the sin nature within us, in our flesh, to sin without the influence of the devil. But great people who make it to high levels also fall, because it's not about works. Otherwise, some of us would boast, look what I did when I became a follower of Christ. I knew one of those great people just in passing, I assure you. One evening, Linda and I had attended a conference for several days in Washington, D.C., and there was one more speaker, and we wanted to hear him, and so we got to the auditorium a little late, and it was a blessing because they sat us in the front row i don't know how much of a blessing that is to have to sit that close to a speaker but when the doors opened and the speaker came out he came over and he sat right next to me the name was chuck colson and chuck colson sat there and he turned to me and said i need you to pray for me and i'm going whoa you know i know who this guy is i mean i'm a fairly new christian i just finished seminary i'm a young pastor and, and this guy wants me to pray for him? Are you kidding me? See, I I knew some about him, but I I brought some notes because there's just too much to know. I knew this. He was a captain in the Marine Corps, after which he became a lawyer, opened his own law firm, was incredibly successful, had a great political mind, and became the special counsel to the president, President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Now, he had no moral compass. He says that. He said, until I was 41 years old, I had no moral compass. All I wanted to do was be powerful and famous and wealthy. I was a workaholic, always achieving, driving myself and others hard. I had an amazing external life with high-capacity performance, but God was a far-off thought. Someone asked him once and he said, I had no idea who the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son were. It just wasn't part of his life. Well, as many of you know, he became what was called Richard Nixon's hatchet man. Now here I am, knowing this, sitting next to him, thinking, you know, God, why did you do this to me? Why do I have to be next to him? He said, So what's your name? Oh, you know, uh-huh. I don't want to know my name. And I said, it's, uh, it's Wally Hostetter. He said, oh, you're Richard's brother. I had forgotten. He and my brother did some things together. And I said, yes, I'm always known as that. That's right. So now I'm identified. Now if the prayer doesn't work, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll, I'll pray with you, Mr. Colson. And I prayed, you know, Lord Jesus, you know, let your Holy Spirit come and, and help him In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, I didn't want to do too much there because I wasn't sure. I figured if I just turn it over to God, God can do something. He said, thank you so much. Thank you so much, you know. I was so glad when it started. Now, Colson didn't really have anything to do with the initiation of the Watergate scandal that led to President Nixon's impeachment and his uh, leaving office before the Senate could vote. But Colson did cover it up. Because he was brilliant he knew how to do that but he got caught and so in 1973 he found out i'm going to jail and he was so concerned and so upset he decided to go see a friend of his tom phillips the ceo of raytheon industries which was a military contractor he did not know that phillips had become a recent convert under billy graham's ministry So he goes out to the beach house in Massachusetts, and he goes in to see Tom Phillips. And it is said that Phillips laid into him with everything he knew about Jesus, telling him how awful he was and how he needed to repent. So it was not what Colson wanted to hear. But he got back in his car, and he said, I left that place. He said, soon I had to pull over to the side of the road. I was forced to admit my guilt, And I cried out in my car, take me, take me. Not a cry to be taken out of this world, but a cry to turn his life over. He was desperate. He knew if I go any further in my life without you, then it's a foolish move. And so he committed his life to Jesus Christ. He served seven months of a three-year sentence. As a believer in Christ, a new believer, he pushed himself into the Word. He was a brilliant man. And by the end of that seven months, he was convinced what God had called him to do through all of this process. And he began the Prison Fellowship Ministry, which is the largest nonprofit ministry in prisons around the world. In 1980, he went home to be with his Lord, or uh, 2012, at the age of 80. I sat there as he spoke, and I listened to this brilliant argument. I had no idea what he said, but when it was over, he came back over to me and put his arm around me and said, thank you so much. That, that prayer really worked. I couldn't see any of my notes, so I just listened to what the Spirit had for me to say. And you know, I'm going, thank you, Jesus. That's the way it went down. Whoa. <laughs> but you know, there was nothing special about him to God. There's nothing special about you or me to God, except for the fact that we're his children. And that makes us special. It's not because of what we do, it's not because of who we are. God didn't look at you and say, Oh, you're going to accomplish this in the future, and so therefore I want to call you into a relationship with myself. No. He simply loves you and forgives sin. God wants this morning you to understand this. If you have accepted Christ into your life, your sins have been forgiven. If you sin, or better said, when you sin, as a follower in Christ, if you confess those, he's faithful and just to forgive them. There's no need to carry guilt. If you hold on to guilt, then you're denying the power of God's forgiveness. If you hold on to fear, you're denying God's sovereignty to lead your future. If you hold on to either one of those, you've frozen yourself out of the present, and this is where we live. When Colson gave himself to Christ, that's where he started to live, and Jesus said, this is what I'm going to do with you. When Paul came to Christ, it was because God called him into that relationship. Now Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? You know, I am Jesus, whom you crucified. Wow, so when he calls you by name into relationship with himself, it's because he loves you, and secondly, he forgives you. So what does it mean? What is forgiveness? What does it mean that we have the forgiveness of our sins? Well, there is an irony in the cross of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, It's the ugliest thing you could imagine. It's one of the worst forms of death that man could ever go through. But on the other hand, when we look at that cross, it's the symbol of our salvation. And so it's beautiful. So it's ugly, and it's beautiful. We are hopelessly enslaved to sin, and the only way out is through this forgiveness that God gets us, and we don't have the ability to do that. You think, oh, yes, I do. I can choose Christ. But you don't have the ability if you're an unbeliever. Look what Paul says in Romans 8, 5 to 8. For those who are living according to the flesh, that means unbelievers, set their minds on the things of the flesh, of unbelief, but those who live according to the Spirit, capitalized, means those who live according to what God says, the things of the Spirit, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity, that's war against God. It's not subject to the law, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's about as clear as it gets. You do not have the ability or the desire as an unbeliever to please God. So I don't care if you're Chuck Colson and you've reached all the way up to the presidency. You haven't pleased God because you're not in him. You're thinking the mind of the flesh. So for those of us who are here today, when our minds go to the flesh, we're not thinking like God. But if you're living in that world of the flesh so that you've never accepted Christ into your life, then it's because you can't without God's forgiveness, and God grants that forgiveness, this is what's so great, without you asking. God didn't come to me and say, do you want me to forgive you 2,000 years ago when my son died on the cross? Do you want me to go back and put your name on that? No, he did it back then without asking me. Wow. Why? Because I'm his child. You're his child. He loves you. That forgiveness has come to you. We need it. When Adam and Eve came together in the garden and decided to disobey God, they had had the ability and the desire to please him, but they chose not to. So what do you get when you make a choice? You get the choice you made. So they chose then that which they received, which was no longer the ability or the desire to please God. That's what Paul's talking about. But when Jesus Christ comes into your life, you regain that ability to sin or not to sin. That's fantastic. The challenge is, for you and for me, that I need to learn how to to make choices that are not sinful anymore. How do I do that? Well, God's given me a gift of His Holy Spirit who lives within me. He says He'll lead you into all truth. So why would I sin if i got the Holy Spirit in me who will tell me whether what I'm going to do or not is sin? He'll keep pushing that sin line out of me to where I'm making less and less choices to sin more and more choices to please God. And that's what forgiveness brings to me. It gives me back that power and ability so that someday I'm going to be with him in glory and so will you who believe in him. And we will no longer have a desire or an ability to do anything but not sin. It won't be possible for us to sin. Won't that be a glorious day? I won't wake up worrying about how I'm going to sin today. I won't have to wake up because I don't think I'm ever going to sleep. I'm going to be in his presence forever. That's a whole nother message. But that, that forgiveness that he gives us is a very special kind of forgiveness. In Isaiah, the prophet writes what God said to him. I, even I, that's God, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. I remember the first time somebody told me that. They said, God doesn't remember your sins. And I'm thinking, oh, then I've got a problem if I've got a God who already has a... But, you know, the age he is, it's possible. He could be having memory problems. I mean, that's not what it means at all. What it means is he never brings up again against you that which he's already forgiven. So I sin today in a certain way. I ask his forgiveness. I've already received it. Tomorrow, I sin again in the same way. He says, that's one. That's forgiveness. That's not the kind of forgiveness you and I have. We're just not capable of that. I have have difficulty forgetting the sins that have been committed against me. I will forgive them, but sometimes it's just hard, isn't it, to forget it? It's still resting back there somewhere. There's still a danger that I might bring it up again. But God never brings it up. Peter said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? The holy number? Jesus said, no, man. Seven times 70. Infinity. You never stop forgiving. You always forgive. But you don't understand. Yes, I do. Jesus understands. Because he has forgiven you and me of everything we've ever done are doing now and never will do it does not permit us to do it but we know we have forgiveness in him because of who he is so the question is do you have that forgiveness is christ your forgiver have you been drawn into that personal relationship with him where you've confessed your sins and said come into my life now and take me over have you cried like colson did take me take me Well, let's go to the last step. How does it actually happen? We ask the question, what is redemption? Forgiveness is directly tied to redemption. Forgiveness is the statement, I forgive you. So what do you think redemption is? It's the action that secures the statement. So that Jesus saying, I forgive you, has no power in and of itself had he not done what's necessary to accomplish that forgiveness. And he did it. When I say, I forgive you, my actions after that statement must be consistent with the forgiveness, or else I haven't really forgiven you. But God forgives you. How do we know for sure redemption worked? From the very beginning, redemption required several things, but the primary thing it required was the shedding of blood. Back in that garden again with Adam and Eve, after God had dealt with them and had made promises to them and placed curses upon them, the Bible says he then covered them with the skin of animals and he put them outside the garden. Well, where did the skin of animals come from? It came from an animal. And at that point in time, sin had not affected the animal world, so whatever animal was selected was spotless, no blemishes whatsoever, and God himself killed it (coughs) and shed its blood. In Genesis chapter 15, God says to Abraham, we're going to make a contract, a covenant, a a, a thing together so that you make me a promise, I make you a promise. And then he makes him fall asleep, and all the sacrifices are made. And he gets down there, and he says, my blood is on me. If you do anything wrong, I'll pay for it. That's his promise. If you do something wrong, I'll pay for it. The blood of Christ. Look what Scripture continues to say. He says in Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is, hear this, it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So it's always been the case that blood would be required in order to gain forgiveness. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, the writer says this, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So we've been told in the Old and in the New, we've been shown from the garden all the way to the cross, that blood is going to be required. Paul is writing about the reality, not the type He's not pointing back or forward to possibilities. He's pointing to the reality. He's saying, this Jesus, who is God, shed himself, his blood, that you and I might be redeemed. Because it is through the shedding of blood that we are redeemed. Peter notes that in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, I love this statement. Silver or gold are from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. In other words, just trying to do something that you're supposed to do. You didn't get it from there, but with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There we are back in the garden again. So that first Adam and then the second Adam who shed his blood that you and I might Have eternal life. Wow, is all we can say. And you see, God didn't do it just for special people, He did it for us. We are ordinary people. We're all ordinary. 99% of the people that have ever come to Jesus Christ are ordinary. There are a few in there that are extraordinary, but that's because He made them that way. But that didn't gain them anything any more than it gained you and me. We gained everything we have because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's unexplainable how God could die on a cross. But the second person of the Trinity did so that we could have life eternal. Now, we lay this foundation of sin and forgiveness and redemption because from this point forward, the next four weeks, you're going to learn how to take that and do something with it. The pastor who led me to the Lord and whose church I was ultimately ordained and, and sent into ministry, he used to ask the question when we'd say, well, we want to do this, he'd say, so what? You know, so what if the first seven verses of Ephesians are true? So what? What's it matter? So you know it. Big deal. Knowing it is not enough. You know it, you apply it to your heart, and now you go and you live it out. We're going to teach you how to live it out, so you don't want to miss a Sunday. But we start today in living it out with something that he told us to do. When he said, as often as you gather together, you know, according to however you choose to do it, I want you to participate with me in my death and resurrection. Communion. That's what we're going to do today. To do that, I'm going to do something that's really fun by the authority granted me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm gonna ordain every one of you here now, you're all ordinary saints, okay? Now, turn to the person next to you if you know their name and say, good morning, saint, and you fill in the name. Go ahead, do it. (laughs) This church is built on the sainthood of Jesus Christ, and we are tied together with Him. So this morning, as those who are serving come forward and begin to serve you, remember, the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ and the fact that He was willing to give His body so that our bodies could be redeemed. The the wine or the juice that we take represents the blood of Jesus Christ, through which our life, which is our soul, is also saved. So the body and the soul are saved together, and we remember what he did in order to gain that for us. So as you are served, please hold these until we've all been served, and we'll participate together.